0: You're listening to episode 41 of the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we talk about how we earn money and spend it. Welcome to the Rebel Buddhist Podcast, where we explore how to use the science of psychology, Eastern spiritual practices like mindfulness and compassion, and the game-changing work of self-coaching so you can free your mind and free your life. I'm your host, Anna Verzoni. All right, Rebels, how are you doing today? You know what comes into my inbox or Facebook feed every now and then? Someone saying, how dare I teach certain tools and charge for them? Like, how can I charge to help people to stop over drinking or stop overeating or have less anxiety or how to manage their mind or how to feel free? They say it's very unspiritual of me, very un-Buddhist of me to earn a living helping people this way. So I wanted to discuss the concept of right livelihood more in depth because I think there are some big misunderstandings of what right livelihood is and a misunderstanding of the teachings and how they were created for monastics and the way it's slightly different in teachings for lay people. Lay people meaning people who aren't ordained monks or nuns. And these misunderstandings lead to a lot of people with good hearts and amazing skills not making a living doing what they love because they have some old stories about what is a noble way to earn a living. Right livelihood is a traditional Buddhist teaching and it's considered one of the factors of the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. So the idea is you follow these eight guidelines and they help create the conditions that make attaining enlightenment easier. I find it helpful to not interpret these as commandments per se, which a lot of people are used to, right? Like many of us grew up being told, hey, if you behave in this way, you're good and will end up somewhere good. And if not, then you're going to end up somewhere really bad. <laughs> so when most of us hear about things we should or should not do, we run for the hills, right? Or, We run straight towards what we're not supposed to do. I know I do, and I know many of you rebels do too. Now, the way I was taught was to see them like they're a recipe, a proven recipe from a really good chef. Sure, we could come up with our own recipe, but if we want to make life easier on the path that we choose and maybe save some time... We might want to follow some advice from those that have gone before us and see if it works for us. So we check for ourselves if practicing right speech, right actions, right livelihood, and all of that helps us grow spiritually. And if it does, great. And if not, then we can choose to leave it. Now, I know when I was taught about the Eightfold Path, I was like, oh, So that's what the Ten Commandments could have been for me. Not these fear-inducing authoritarian things, right? Like, I was raised super strict Catholic. You know, there's a joke that there's two types of Western Buddhists, former Catholics and former Jewish people. So anyway, I learned a lot from studying the Eightfold Path and the Precepts and using them as sage advice— versus seeing them as something that could like damn me to hell or not, right? And so you're going to hear different interpretations of that though, and I'm no guru, so you need to find what's right for you, okay? But this has been what has been most beneficial for me in terms of how to think about it and work with it. So... Right livelihood is a part of a series of recommendations that makes attaining enlightenment easier. And I won't go into the other seven aspects today, but just stick with right livelihood. And Jack Cornfield said, right livelihood is considered a part of the way to enlightenment most simply because it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. We can use our work as a practice and a form of meditation. And I totally relate to that right? Essentially, right livelihood is refraining from types of work that cause harm to other living beings. Because when we are aware of it consciously, or even when we're only aware of it on a more subtle subconscious level, when we cause harm to other people, it creates a sense of unrest, right? So Right livelihood is about avoiding trades that directly or indirectly harm others. And the examples traditionally given are like selling slaves or weapons. You know, the U.S. is the number one exporter of weapons. Animals for slaughter, intoxicants, or poison. But ultimately, the teaching of right livelihood is about ethical livelihood. And that, I think, helps right livelihood be more clear. But there's a lot of muddled energy around money and its role in right livelihood. Like sex and the beauty of sensuality, money is another form of human energy. And last week we spoke about how desire is totally natural, right? Well, money is a form of energy and it's quite neutral. It can be used in really beneficial ways and it can be used in destructive ways. And I've noticed that almost everybody is a bit ashamed about money in some way, either ashamed to have been born with it or ashamed to not have enough of it. But I do see this even more so in people who think they don't have enough money. Oh, I was on welfare. I have a low paying job and should have taken a different career path or I just never have enough money. They feel ashamed and guilty. It's like everybody or almost everybody's carrying around some kind of neurosis or conflict with money. And there's a charge behind money. And most are definitely not very comfortable talking about it. And then you add to that the spiritual things we hear about renunciation or all the different spiritual traditions that kind of reinforce the sense of fear of it or shame or negative judgment of it. Like monastics are taught not to even touch it. And that they can only beg for food and can't buy it. And then our money stories get mixed with greed and desire and all of those other things that come with being born in a body and being a silly human, right? And it becomes a lot. And it's even more difficult because we in the West live in a culture with such a disparity of rich and poor. Actually in most parts of the globe now, right? Such a disparity of rich and poor. And we wonder, what's our place in it? What's our role in it? And are we participating in the injustice of it? Are we doing something that will right it? And to participate in the injustice of it, does that mean that you shouldn't have money or you should give it all away? Or should you help other people? And in a society where money is power, how does it show up then? And it's also not black and white, right? Like I know teachers that work for wealthy universities and they're like, Well, technically, what I'm doing is right livelihood, but I feel a sense of ethical responsibility with how much debt these students are graduating with, right? There's all different ways to look at it. There's a complexity to it. And this is something that you have to contemplate and pay attention to yourself. And keep in mind that those kinds of questions get entangled with the delusions of class and race and culture as well. And we're very unconscious about all of those generally, certainly in the American culture, but in global culture in many ways as well. So we need to look at our relationship to money and talk about it and understand it because it's everywhere, not just in our livelihood and how we earn it, but how we spend it as well, right? Right. So you might ask if you should take a certain job and make a bunch of money and wonder if it's ethical or not or what to do when the family's fighting over an inheritance or how to spend some money you came across or what you're willing to do to get out of poverty. But ultimately, we want to understand that money is just energy and that the world actually has abundance of energy and that money is an expression of the aliveness of the world. And if that energy... And aliveness and money, if those are combined with a vision of care and justice and used with integrity, it can do all kinds of positive things. There's a story I really find helpful when considering right livelihood and wealth for the layperson. And it's of a man who went to the Buddha. And this man was a wealthy merchant and says, I've heard your followers talk of the bliss of a renunciate life. And I see you become a homeless wanderer. I wonder if I should do the same thing. Should I give up everything to find the truth? And the Buddha replied, The bliss of a truth-seeking life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it's better to throw it away than let it poison your heart. But if you don't cling and use it wisely for yourself, for those around you, and for the community— Then you will be a blessing to people. It's not wealth and power that enslave us, but the clinging and misuse of them. My teaching does not require anyone to become homeless, but it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are separate from the rest of the world. And whatever you do, whether in the world or as a recluse, put your whole heart into it and if you have to struggle then do it without envy or hatred and let people live not a life of self but a life of truth and in that way bliss will enter their hearts boom mic drop there right <laughs> so there's a lot of teachings for us that are not monks and nuns that are very very important and they're not emphasized much because most of what was written down in the buddhist tradition was for monastics but they're there and they're one voice that could be found in every wise spiritual tradition, right? It's not like this is just in the Buddhist tradition. So you want to get comfortable with money and look at your own relationship to it. And then you're going to have to get clear on your relationship to it and how you choose to earn a living and how you spend your money. I know in my mindfulness meditation teacher training program, Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock, they said that we need to reflect on our own views about should we teach for dhana and donations? Should we charge money? How much should we charge? And to consider the context in which we teach. Because there are a lot of people who believe no one should ever charge for dharma teachings. And there are a lot of amazing dharma teachers that would never be able to get their teachings to the world without charging for it. And I'm not even a Dharma teacher, right? I'm just teaching people how to live a better life so they can live a life of no regrets and make the most of this one precious life. And even I get backlash for that. And in my healthcare practice, people will get mad that we charge for that too. Yoga teachers, they get this too, right? So in one of our question and answer sessions, I asked Jack Cornfield about this, how to handle it when people get upset that people charge for classes. And he told me that, We aren't going to be able to please everyone. Someone will always be upset with what we choose. And we need to really introspect and reflect so that we like our reasons for doing what we're doing and feel good about it. So I want to invite you to do that as well. And I know some of you out there think that the easy way out is not to charge. Then no one will be upset with you, right? But I want to share a story with you. Sylvia Borstein... A well-known insight meditation teacher, a Dharma teacher, was teaching a 10-week class, An Introduction to Mindfulness, and it started with 100 students. And it was on donation basis. And at the end, you could give dana or a donation. And as the weeks went on, there was attrition. And by the end of 10 weeks, there were only 49 people in the class. And she was like disgusted. She said, I don't like this. She said, let's charge. So she said, I want to charge $150 for the class, $15 a night for 10 weeks. So they set it up, same class, but $150. Started with 100 people, end of 10 weeks, 96 people in the class. All right? And I found this to be true in my coaching practice as well. When people have skin in the game, they're more likely to show up and to do the work. People will ask me to charge less for my courses and every now and then I have a donation only sale for my most popular course. Lots of people sign up for it and donate a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, right? But who finishes it? None of them. I can see. I can see how many people go in and complete it. None of them. Who does finish the courses? The people in Freedom School right? And especially the people who sign up for a full year in advance. There's a sense of commitment there. So this isn't to say that's the right way to do it. But what it is saying is that we now live in a culture where money is a part of people's intention and their investment. And you need to really reflect and find what is a healthy way for you. And even if you have a lot of money and you don't need it, You might still feel like it's more appropriate to charge for your time because it's healthier in your particular context. And I've seen this done a lot, actually. Or you might be in a community where that's really the wrong thing. And there might be communities where the best thing you can do is to offer your time without charging. But those are the things that you want to get comfortable exploring and then find your own way and then use it to create benefit. You've heard me say in many episodes that I hope you use what you learn to benefit the world. Now, as the teachings of wise livelihood go, first is not to cause harm with the money that you make. And the teachings are to do things that have value to yourself and others, to create a benefit. And then the wealth from that can be celebrated. And let's not forget, you also need to use it for yourself, your family, your community, for the world in ways that are skillful but also in a way where you see yourself as the steward of it. That's right, livelihood, in its essence. Remember, you don't actually own the money. It's energy. It's like the rich woman in the neighborhood, someone really wealthy who died. And somebody says, well, how much did they leave? And the other person says, why, (laughs) everything, of course. That's how much you leave, right? So you don't get to keep it. But what you can do is be the shepherd and the steward of it. And you want to be careful to not let fear and greed drive you in your life. And the only way to do that is to try to become conscious of it, to pay attention. So this is another important area where mindfulness can help us so that it's a conscious process. For me, What I've arrived at that feels good is I offer lots of free things. This podcast where I teach all the concepts that I think are important to helping us make the most of this one precious life. I do multiple free multi-day trainings throughout the year, free blog posts, free multi-day challenges. We just finished a find the freedom within challenge. I do free workshops in underserved communities or donation only programs. So I say, hey, if you can't afford my programs, don't worry. All my teachings are available in all these free ways. And then I have the things I charge for. And like Sylvia Borstein found, I find when people have skin in the game, they get more out of the work because they are more likely to show up and do it, to apply it. So that setup feels good for me. My work is available to everyone from any income bracket. And that might not feel good to you. And I'm sure there will still be people who disagree with me, but that will always be the case. So remember, do your own exploration and find out what feels right for you and allow the space to change your mind about that in the future. You may learn something and want to change things up. Like when I discovered people don't show up regularly for free courses. (laughs) We do this also ethically, yeah? in a way that doesn't harm others. And we remember that money is neutral. It's about how we earn it and how we spend it. The most important thing, Rebels, is that you discover your truth and like your reasons. All right. And in case you're wondering, Enrollment for Freedom School has opened So go to joinfreedomschool.com and join the squad because we're going to have a lot of fun this year and I want you to make the most of your one precious life. If you like what you heard, please spread the love and share it. And if you know you need some help with this and want to learn more about how to free your mind and free your life, Go to rebelbuddhist.com and grab my free Rebel Buddhist Toolkit, where you'll receive a video training on cultivating resilience, access to the private Rebel Buddhist group where I do weekly live sessions on topics just like this, and a copy of the gorgeous Rebel Buddhist Manifesto, and more for free. That's rebelbuddhist.com.